when I walk through a jam No one knows who I am Put your head on my chest And I'm Mr. Success Good morning, you are listening to the Inevitable Radio Show and Mr. Success. Are you Mr. and Ms. Success today? Are you alive in your life? Are you the successful man or woman or salesman or woman or parent or employee or brother or father? What are you today? Who are you in your life today? Welcome. You are listening to William Sumner. I am the host of the Inevitable Radio Show. We're here to talk about success, to talk about creation of life, to talk about how you are doing. It's called the Inevitable Radio Show because my brand is called the Inevitable You. Because unlike all the other coaches and motivational speakers and authors and stuff out there, this show isn't about me. I'll certainly talk about me. I will give you some tools and beliefs and things that I know about the planet. We're going to talk about something called wired to win. Are you wired to win in your life? And what I want you to think about, no matter where you are in your life, you're awesome, you're above average, you're ordinary, you're struggling, you're the bottom of the heap, and and life is being very, very cruel to you. It doesn't matter where you are in life. I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you wired to win? Meaning, do you think like a champion? Do you believe like a champion? Do you act like a winner? Do you do things that winners do? Or are you a defender? Do you defend your life? Do you avoid things? Do you make sure that you minimize the hurt? the pain, the challenge, the problems, because you believe that your life is designed not to be a winner. You're not wired to win. You're not a champion. You've tried, maybe you've tried many times, but have arrived at this place in your life where you've decided, you know, yeah, not me. If I can be an okay person, if I'm just okay, I'll love my kids I'll do the best I can at work, but at the end of the day, that all boils out to I'm okay. And in these moments when the economic times are tough or life is tough, then you struggle more than most. Are you wired to win? Are you a champion? Do you think like a winner? One of the things I did often growing up, and this was long before the old expression that's been floating around, uh, you know, What would Jesus do? I always had this, what would my hero do right now in this circumstance? Whether it's a uh, challenge at school, whether it is a, uh, a challenge with a friend, whether it was a challenge in dating, I'd always think, okay, so there's a hero of mine out there on the planet, Superman, Superwoman, they're, they're, they're a superstar. What would they do? What would they think? What would they feel? How would they get out of this jam? And I'd always picture that. If your hero dropped into your life today, went on a sales call with you tomorrow, talked to your teenage child, faced your mortgage payment, what would your hero do? And actually, one of my heroes growing up, i uh kind of not sure which direction his politics has taken in, 
in the last handful of years. He's really gotten doing some odd things on the political scene. But one of my actual heroes growing up was Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you know his story, it's a pretty incredible story. He's a 19-year-old immigrant from Austria, can't speak English, lanky, geeky, uh, seen any of those pictures. I mean, he looked like he was 12 years old, and he was a weightlifter at that time, and he had some success in Austria, but he come to the to the land of the big grocery store, you know, this was, this was the place where opportunity was. He wanted to come to America and he had two dreams. He was going to be the most incredible physique on the planet and he was going to be a movie star. And people just laughed at him. I mean, he was geeky. He was lanky. He didn't have the, the traditional classic, wasn't even close to the body at that time of bodybuilders that were successful. And to be a movie star, he couldn't even speak English. And he's always had that horrible accent, even when the more he learned English. But what's really interesting about him, before he made that first movie, Pumping Iron, that just really cheesecake, Harold Gaines, kind of fun look at bodybuilding weightlifters back then. If you remember that, and there's a couple other really bad B-rolls where there was one they actually dubbed in an English voice because his English was so bad. He was a multimillionaire at that time. And do you know why? He was a multimillionaire because he and another bodybuilder, another immigrant, an Italian from, uh, from I think it was Sicily or Sardinia, one of the big islands in the south, Franco Colombo. He and Franco would go, they'd lift most of their day. They'd do a lot of eating. I'm sure maybe even do a lot of roids back then, but they'd, they'd work out pretty hard. But a lot of their day, they would spend to make money. They would go from destruction site to destruction site, meaning they knew where crews were going and wrecking buildings. And they would go and take the bricks and chip the concrete off by hand and sell the bricks back for pennies and, and a recycling back then. Days and days and days where they went to job sites where buildings were being torn down, chipped concrete off of bricks to resell them, and that's how they made their living. So by the time he got to begin his movie career, where he made millions was because he became friends with the destruction crews. He knew where they were bidding on destroying things, and he wouldn't, you know, started very small and, and built himself over a course of several years, but he would buy property around the destruction site because he knew the real estate values would rise. And he started making a ton of money. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the immigrant that couldn't speak English, that was doing bodybuilding, which was a very disdained, you know, sport at the time, was a multimillionaire from chipping concrete off of bricks. So I always had this, I liked Arnold. So whatever I was in, I was like, okay, so how would I get out of this jam? What would my hero do? Ask yourself this question. What would your hero do in your life today? What would your hero, your heroine, what would she do in your life today? So when you look at your challenges and your struggles today, you're struggling with your mortgage payment, you're struggling as your company downsizes, you're struggling with a teenager, you're struggling with a relationship. Could your hero do a better job than you? If it was possible, could they drop into your life? Because you see, you believe that they are wired to win. They are winners. They think already like a winner. They speak like a winner. They act like a winner. And here's the big, big question for you. 
if your hero dropped in and you believe you know what they would say or do to get out of the jam, why don't you say or do that today? Why don't you say, do, think, believe, focus on what they would? If you did exactly what you think they did, would you have a better outcome today than your life is? Because most people go, well, I can't do that because I'm not a hero. I can't do that. I've tried that before. Oh, when I tried to to win, when I tried to win big, ooh, got my fingers smashed in the drawer of life. I'm, I'm not going to do that. If I could just eke out, if I could just survive... If I could just, like, not lose too much, if I could not be too damaged during, if I could just limit the amount of pain and loss that I have. And the problem with that thinking when you're defending is that you cannot win, first of all. And second of all, if you do the incredible best job you can to limit pain, if your strategies in life are designed to minimize your pain, and you do an incredible job of it. The best day you are going to have on this planet is limited pain. Think about it. That sucks. That's terrible. You don't want a life, and you don't want to teach your children, and you don't want to hang out the rest of your life focused on limiting your pain. But think about how often what you do on a sales call, what you do with your boss in a staff meeting, what you do with your friend at lunch, what you say to your teenage child is really designed for caution, really designed to damage control or minimize or protect you so that you cannot be hurt. It's not designed to win. You're not wired to win. Thank you for listening to The Inevitable Podcast. Please visit our website for more information on this extraordinary coaching system at www.theinevitableu.com. Then sign up for your two-week free trial of our membership to gain access to hundreds of hours of amazing content and tools just like this. Now back to Bill. We're talking today about are you wired to win? And if you wanted to be, how would you do that? I'm going to give you an incredible study from the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. It is going to blow your mind. Most people think that the superstar musicians on this planet, superstar virtuosos on this planet, are who they are because of incredible musical talent that they perhaps displayed as early as three or four or five years old. Yeah, I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to give you something different to think about. If you have ever played an instrument in your life, if you have a child who is taking music lessons right now, you're going to want to hear this. Virtually everybody you talk to, if they look at a real virtuoso, someone who's going to be a solo player on the Berlin Orchestra's um, main stage, someone who is one of those rare, rare musical talents that they touched an instrument when they were three, four, five, and they, and they could just play, and they were a gift to music. And we believe those are the virtuosos of life, and then everybody else, they're not so good. 
And we believe that a lot of what takes place in a professional musician's life has to do with talent. So this new book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell's Design for Success, looked at the top musicians at the Irving Berlin Academy of Music. It's a very elite school, very hard to get into. And they took all the cellist players and divided them into three groups. The top group, which was 1% of the students that were there, were the virtuosos, the ones that were going to go on and be soloists on world-class stages around the world. The second group they divided was about 15 20% was the ones they believed was going to make their living as a musician. They were going to be the first chair, second chair. They were going to be in a band. They were going to go from concert to concert. They were going to make their living playing their instruments, and we're going to do well at it. The big chunk that was left, the three-fourths, the 70% that were left at the Irving Berlin Music Academy in this study were the, what they called the grinders, the ones that were just going to you know, be music teachers at high schools and colleges, teach, maybe not even end up playing their instruments professional, but maybe be in the music industry. These are people that for the for the course of everybody else would be very 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 good at what they did but for the world of professional music they were just going to be people that didn't even really make their living playing their instruments now you would think that this group was divided by talent well as they studied them there was one and only one correlation that matched every one of them no exceptions and there's two ways to look at this that both ways had no exceptions and it was this first of all all of them started playing their instruments very young generally around three four five years old started playing their instruments all of them had some amount of talents whether they were virtuosos or just just good talent they started playing their instruments Ages three, four, five, five, six, seven, eight, eight, nine, those kinds of age ranges, they generally had the same practice profile, meaning they played around five, six hours a week, you know, five year old kid, blah, blah, blah. About the age of nine is when the groups begin to diverge. The virtuosos started playing a lot more, and there was two critical things to how they played. One is they played a lot more. So Almost by every year, year 9, year 10, year 11, they up their playing about an hour a week. Secondly, they played with the intention to improve. They weren't just playing and they weren't just doing music lessons because they had to play it. They merely, and it's a merely because it's important because this is just a choice. Am I practicing this song right now because I have to practice it or am I practicing because I want to get better? So in high school, they were playing almost 20 hours a week by the time they were college age and 20, 21, 22 years of age, they were playing 30 hours a week, the virtuosos. The music teachers, the people that were just going to make a living in the music industry were at about the 15-hour-per-week range. Only difference. There was nobody, and this is the second way to think about it, because I went back and looked at it. There was nobody in the you're-going-to-be-a-music-teacher range, not one of them, that were practicing 30 hours a week. And there was no virtuoso, not one, that was going to appear on a world stage 
that was practicing 15 hours a week. The only difference of all the things that they looked at in this group was how much time they committed to becoming better at what they do. If you're looking at your job and believing that you can't be in the top 1% of your sales team, if you can't be in the top 1% of the company that you're in, you can't be in the top 1% of your job, or if you're a small business owner believing that you're not meant to be on the cover of Inc. Magazine, it's simply not true. It's simply not true. You can be there. There are a number of factors that go into how we think about ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, and what we believe in. But in many respects, how we overcome, and this is one of the tools to ponder, do you practice in your life at the thing that you love the most with the sole intention of getting better at it? Remember in the beginning of the show, I talked about the people that their strategies are really designed to limit damage or protect themselves or not to fail too greatly. People might have strategies with their parenting, with their work, that says, well, I am uh, yeah, going to limit myself here. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'll, uh, I'll, 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 if I put too big of a hope out there, I could be crushed. So I'll just do enough to be average. I'll do enough to be above average, whether it is your parenting, whether you are a salesperson, whether you're a small business owner. I'll get by. I'll get by on my health. I'm going to diet with only a certain amount of outcome in mind. I'm not going to have a dynamic, healthy, exciting, incredible body. I, if I could just lose five pounds. Yeah, that, yeah, I just, that's all that I'm meant to have. And that's the psychology that that person approaches their life with. That's all I'm meant to have. Well, that's all you can ever get if you're only trying to lose five pounds and you make five pounds of modification in your thought process and your feelings about yourself, you're not going to drop 40. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. In part, you do it to hope for the fact that, well, uh, if I really tried, if I really wanted to lose 40, I could. But, hey, you know, there's stress in my life. There's this in my life. There's So you build these stories. You craft these ways that you do not succeed at something that you're doing. But the reality is, if you believe you can, and you practice your life like you can, and you just commit to make yourself better, all kinds of incredible things begin to happen. Thank you for listening to The Inevitable Podcast. Please visit our website for more information on this extraordinary coaching system at www.theinevitableu.com. Then sign up for your two-week free trial of our membership to gain access to hundreds of hours of amazing content and tools just like this.